his holy name. We pray these things. Be thy will. Amen. We're in First Peter. Um, so Jay Lee is um, um, in the family, are, are ill, so they're not here. So I'm starting a week early uh, in my class. Um, so we're in First Peter chapter 3, but I, w- I would like for us to grab context to understand what First Peter 3 is really, you know, kind of grab an idea of First Peter. And so I'm, I'm going to ask for your input. If you like the input, that'd be great. Uh, and if you don't, that's, that's fine. Uh, we'll set the class up and um, do the best that we can. It's all about submission, right? First Peter is really about submission. He's talking to the aliens. Who are the aliens? Well, Christians, aren't they? Right? They're not aliens from outer space. They're Christians who are living in this crazy world. Well, is the world crazy? Yeah, right? Full of sin, right? And so here we are, Christians, living in a world that's full of sin. Um, we're struggling ourselves. How do we negotiate our walk of faith in a world that's full of sin? And here's what's interesting. We came out of the sinful world, right? Each of us had our own vices, right? Our struggles with temptation. And then we became Christians. And then as a Christian, God says there's a certain way you have to walk and live your life. And we didn't all live that way. In fact, I'll bet none of us did before we became Christians. We read the word of God and we surrendered to God and we submitted to him and that's what caused us to change our ways our love for him right okay so watch watch what happens now as we're opening this discussion up of submission and subjection and modesty and immodesty and all these things watch how it just kind of all fits together in a way that brings glory and honor to God so first thing verse chapter 2 of 1st Peter and I want us to read verse 11 um, through verse 13. So it says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. And by the way, we will not have PowerPoints either for the Bible class. It's going to work out a little easier, I think, um, for the, those in the booth up there. Abstain, something we haven't had to do, abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Now I want to set this up, and I'm going to come back and set it up over and over again. Rome, <laughs> Rome was a piece of work when it comes to lust and, and when it comes to uh, idolatry, right? Sexual, sensual idolatry, right? So, so, you know, it didn't start with Rome. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Syrians and the Babylonians. And, it, you know, it didn't start there. It goes back to Egypt and dealing with all the idolatry there, even with Judah, right? It's just so sensuality and, and lust is just a way of the world and it, drives the world and has driven the world and so uh, the writer Paul Peter he says to us you got to abstain from that which you used to be or maybe are still acquainted with you got to get away from that mindset okay then he goes on in verse 12 keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God and the day of visitation. So now comes the switch or the reversal. Now that which is good is being spoken of as evil. So you walked away from sensuality, and now they're saying, "Hey, why do you think you're better than us?" Right? You ever have you heard that? You right? You, know, you Christians think you're better than us 
have we said that? No, it's because we live different lives. We think differently. We, we, are, we are a different people. We have been transformed by the grace of God. We, we have challenged, if you will, right, the world and saying, hey, you know, Jesus wants us to see life in a different way, from a different perspective or vantage point. And so now the reversal happens. Now they're slandering Christians as being evil. And then Christians grow weaker because we don't want to be singled out, right, as being evil when we're actually doing good, but the world sees it as evil because now you think you're better than everyone else when you've never said that. You just said, hey, I don't live that way any longer. I don't want to participate in that any longer. I don't want to treat my, this is where we're going to get to, my wife like that any longer. I don't want to treat my husband like that, my children my neighbors were different, right? And, then, and when you're different in a Christian way, you stand out. Not that we want to stand out, but you automatically stand out. You're different, right? Maybe that's why he calls us aliens. <laughs> we're different, right? We're viewed as different. We're seen as different. Verse 13 says, so here's the solution. Submit yourselves for... The Lord's sake. Not because it's something that's going to be fun and enjoyable necessarily. It's a better way of living. But, but you're going to be singled out, which means you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be identified as being one of those Jesus followers, one of those people who are in the way. The way, you know, he's like, are, you, are you in the way? Yes. One of those people, right? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king uh, as to one in authority, and it continues on about submission and more submission and more submission. So, so he, here's the problem. So sex sins, for how long would you say, have ruled the hearts of mankind? Right? I mean, you might as well just say almost forever, right? I mean, almost. I mean, it's been a really long time, and we go back into history, and we can, we can see this, and, and forever then, think about this, forever or for as long as this has been, Women have been placed in a very vulnerable place or position in life, right? Think about that. Just, just for a moment. Think about what does that mean? We're going to talk more about that as we continue in this, in this lesson. But, but when you become a Christian, you think differently and act differently and walk differently. And, and then Christian men are supposed to do something in the Roman era that is the unthinkable. Because... Women have no rights according to the law. So now Christian men are going to do according to Roman law. You're going to violate Roman law in one way because now you're going to fight the worldly mindset and you're going to treat women respectfully, honorably, as a fellow heir, like equal. We could go back in America a few years ago, right? And we had that same problem here too, right? There's no rights. So here's the problem in First Peter chapter 3. How does that woman who has no rights, who, has, who, who is um, sexualized, right, in every way, um, through, you know, goddesses, people today don't think about it often, but a lot of goddesses, you have gods and goddesses, the whole idea is kind of silly, right? When you think about Milcom and you think about um, 
uh, some of the old old goddesses of the Old Testament, Asherah. Uh, you know, gods and goddesses can't have babies. We know that, right? We, they're just inanimate objects. They're just little trinkets. That so how do you how do you get them? <laughs> well, you know they sacrifice. You, you know about that, humans. Um, but then you take a, a a real woman now, and and how do you how do you treat this real woman as an equal in a place where she's not? even seen as a human being in, in one sense or another. So, so, so God throws this, there's this law, this, this rule out in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, um, that when you jump all the way down there and, and listen to what it says, it says to the husbands, it says, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, so there's, we're going to come back to that verse. It's a very important verse. But now I want to set up a question. Again, there's a microphone in the back, but if you want to comment, I'll, uh, I'll try to repeat what you've stated. In a Roman society full of heathens, can we still use that word? <laughs> full of heathens, with, with idolatry all over the place, with goddesses and gods, full and out of control with male chauvinism and, and egos and, and etc. And then a woman, one of you, you hear the message of Jesus from somewhere. Right? Someone teaches you. And you learn the message of Christ. And you understand the Messiah is here. And you want to submit and surrender to the Messiah. Keep in mind that Christianity, because of the evangelistic nature of it, was an illegal religion. It was illegal. You, you, you know, it was just, they, so they were killing, executing Christians. You're not allowed to proselyte. You can't go from one religion to another. You have to stay put, right? So there's this illegal religion, but it's Jesus. And you have found Jesus. And so you're, you're excited. You surrender to him in the waters of baptism. But now, how do you, as a woman, take the gospel message of Christ to your husband, who is still a heathen, following Roman law, who doesn't know the Messiah? Without, one, putting your own life in jeopardy, your own physical self. And then, two, exposing to the heathen world Christ and where the meeting place is of your now local congregation. Think about that. In a, in a sex-driven, worldly society where you have no rights as a woman, how do you do that? How would you, how would you come to that, that man and say to him, and I, I want to say, if you don't want it, that's fine, but I need to save my children. How, how do you do that? How do you argue that point? And that's the question of 1 Peter chapter 3. How are you as a woman going to spread the gospel 
of Jesus Christ without, number one, being executed pretty much immediately, and number two, being turned in by your husband as some, uh, you know, this woman who's now following illegal religion, um, who's walking away from idolatry, who now has a different vantage point of life, and now, because Christ is a liberator, you've been liberated, so now you, you have a mind, which you've always had, but now all of a sudden, this husband of yours is supposed to see you as someone important because you are valued by God equally. And you get home, and you've gone through persecution through your day, and now your husband begins to persecute you because you now are a Christian. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you now bring the gospel to him? How is that possible? And that was the problem in that day. In some, and in some ways, even in some places in our world today, that's still the problem, isn't it? Because we're still dealing with male chauvinism and egotistical minds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's kind of still the problem. All right, well, now let's, let's, so that's the specific, and we're going to come right back to the specific. Now, generically, it works the same way, right? Here you're a man, and, and you're going to go to work, and now you've come to Christ, right? You think about Cornelius, for example. Um, he has to go back as a Roman centurion and be a Roman centurion as ruthless as they were. How do you do that <laughs> and be a Christian? How, how, do you, how do you do that? How do we as Christians live in a society, speaking of Rome again, that, it, that is so full of wickedness and vileness and all those words that would go with that, would associate with that? How do, we, how do we act, live differently, think differently, respond differently? How do we do different things in a society that doesn't want to change and that will execute you at will. How do we do that? And so, and then we take it that next step to make it very personal because it is very personal. And then how do we, how do we bring this gospel, this change to our jobs, to our, our world, to our associates, to our neighbors, within our homes, without putting in jeopardy the whole group of believers and without putting our children at jeopardy and at risk without putting our spouses at jeopardy and at risk? How do, we, how do we do that? And then the question is, does the way of God actually work? You know, does it work? Now, we, we've, we've seen, you know, over time it, it, it does work, but the problem with it is it, it usually, it, it takes time. It doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight, right? And we're not very patient, um, so, so listen to what he says. Here's something that works. But it doesn't happen overnight. But it works. And the answer of 1 Peter is submission and humility. It works. I mean, just in America, we've watched it work. We, we've watched it work over history, over time. You, you've watched it work. It works. Okay. But what happens when you hear... A passage that tells you to submit to a, a, a wicked government like Rome, and you're like, I am not. 
I, as long as it doesn't violate the law of God, right? But I am not going to surrender to this wicked government. Well, that doesn't work. And it also doesn't work in the home, right? So, so we know that the, the lesson has, has been presented to us in such a way to where that submission word works both ways, right? Husbands and wives and wives to husbands. It works both ways. It works in the church submitting to each other and ultimately where does submission ultimately lie with Jesus, right? We're all submitting to Jesus. We're not, we're not, we're submitting to each other or really submitting to Jesus, right? Because that's what's important. That's really all that matters when it really comes down. You break everything down. You get through all the, uh, the crusades, et cetera, et cetera. And what it really boils down to is you're submitting to Jesus, right? And, and that's the goal. And that's what makes submission such, such a, a desired position for a Christian is because we want to please Jesus because we feel like at some point in our Christian walk, we feel like we owe him, right? You, you got to get there in your life. So you have to get to the point where you say, you know what, Jesus? I owe you my life for what you've done for me. And not just for me. After I get rid of that selfishness for the whole world. So listen to what he says. He says, wives, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are, you got to love this, you got to listen to this. He didn't call them a heathen. But if any of them, the preacher, the elder, the deacon, the heathen, outside of Christ, the man of God inside of Christ, the man who's struggling with his walk of faith, the man who's getting there, the man who hadn't gotten there yet, the man that you can fix, whatever it is. Even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. It's the same thing he said earlier about the government. If you want to bear arms and go out and shoot the government, you know, using that uh okay but that's not going to work right that's not going to work it's the heart that has to change right that's not going to work just like at home when you you come home and and husband is still in 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 idolatry and you come home and you yell at him about why that that just that's wrong and it's evil and it's ungodly that's that's not that's not going to make him change Right? See, now either God is right, so here's the struggle, because here's what we have to do. We have to step back and ask ourselves, as we've been reading through First Peter, you've been studying it, and it says, submit to the to you know government institutions and and, and you know submit to higher powers and, and boy I'm having a hard time with that because I don't I don't that's why we shouldn't get wrapped up in politics. Right? You can say amen, but you don't have to. That's why we shouldn't. We ought to just be Christians. Right? That way you can just say, look, whatever God wants. Because this is God's place, and I'm just an alien. I'm here for a little while, but I'm just, I'm, I'm just passing through, right? I am not going to surrender to that which is against God's word. Instead, I'm going to surrender to God's word and remain an alien and a stranger in a place of which I reside in the physical, in the flesh, until what? Until God calls me home. See, I can't convert people unless I bring them Jesus. And guess what? You know what they're going to listen to first? What does verse 1 say? They're going to listen to what you do. 
before they listen to what you say. So he says, look, if you want, you can come home and argue and fight and you can make your points and and you can do that, but that's not going to work. What does work is the example of holy women in the past. They were holy women. And what they did was, instead of, instead of necessarily proclaiming and, and being dogmatic about God, religion, and life, they lived it. And when they lived it, it did something to the heart of their husband. You might say it, it shamed them, but more so than that, it humbled them. Just like it humbles the government, right? The government eventually has to give in in some way, and other times it doesn't. But it doesn't matter because we surrender to God, so what difference does it make, right? Okay. So, how does a woman do this under persecution? It doesn't feel good, we know. Chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2 and verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence silence the ignorance of foolish men. And that's what it is, right? It's ignorance. Rome, they were full of ignorance because they didn't know God. As we, before we knew God, were likewise full of ignorance. Things we thought were right, we believed they were right, we lived as if it was right, as if it were the only way, it was the right way, it was the societal way, and so we lived accordingly. But then we learned Jesus, and we became knowledgeable, right? We've learned something, and now we live our lives differently. Now, it's a lot easier to come home to a man who has surrendered himself to Jesus, is humble, and the Word of God becomes, an, if you will, the maybe not the litmus test, but the Word of God becomes the equalizer, the Word of God, we're all submitting to God. So when it comes down to the end of the day, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about lifting up Jesus, right? We know Jesus is always right. It kind of, it kind of debunks or it diffuses arguments too, doesn't it? I'm right, you're right, who's right? God's right, right? We, get, we just kind of go back to that, you know, but the Lord said, you know, I really don't want to forgive, but the Lord said, you know, I'm really having a hard time with, with surrendering at this point. But the Lord said, you know, if we live our lives that way, but the Lord said, it, it kind of diffuses a lot of the arguments that we have in, in life with each other, the way we treat one another. It, it kind of, it, it humbles us. And so, and so verse 15, again, it, it tells us to, this is the will of God that we do the right thing. And when we do the right thing, that's how you silence the ignorant. That's how we do it. But see, when I grew up, um, there's another way to silence the ignorant. <laughs> that doesn't work. I mean, it might win for a minute, for a moment, but, but what is the end game for all of us? Heaven. <laughs> and then, and then who, are we gonna, who are we trying to bring with us? Everyone. <laughs> That's the end game. The end game is not winning. The end game is God winning, if you will. The end game is bringing people to Jesus. How do I walk away from this conversation, from this environment, from my environment, from this problematic world? How do I walk away without staining myself? How do I walk away without hardening everyone's heart 
against me? How do I walk away from this argument in a unified way that we walk away and we go, ah, and we, but we, we both humble ourselves and we, how do we do that and not cause our neighbors to, instead of thinking about what we're talking about, maybe just through our behavior, we don't want them to hate us. We want them to love Jesus. In a world like the Roman world, uh, how, how difficult, you know, you say, well, how difficult was that? Well, let me ask you that question by asking you a question. How many Christians, not just Christians, how many human beings died under Roman rule? By way of execution, by fire, by torture, by torment. You have your rebellious groups. That didn't change Rome. It's the heart. You can make a thousand laws. If the heart isn't right, the laws won't matter. Right? Laws will be broken. Mankind will rise up against the law and say no more and fight back. Laws don't fix stuff. They're helpful. We need them. But it's the heart that Jesus wants to change. Right? Okay. So now we look at this text, and as we, I want to go back to Genesis um, chapter uh, 12, because um, we're, we're going to get down to, okay, so you go home, how do you, how do you deal with that rebellious um, husband? Um, what, do you, what do you do right, with this situation? So God gives you from, from verse 1, well, verse, 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through 6, he gives the woman who is, who is an equal fellow heir, right, he gives her, he gives her an understanding of how she is to deal with that man who is uh, still a heathen, if you will. He's trying to bring him to Christ. Or maybe he's a godly man. He just isn't there yet. How do you deal with that man? Right? How do you help him to figure things out? Well, he gave us an example. And the example he used was contrary to the worldly example. The worldly example is, hey, you know what? We've been sexualized, so let's sexualize this thing. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work either. So he gives us an example. He said, "When you think about a woman, and um, and she's a, if I can say this uh, respectfully, um, she's an old woman. She's not that old, but she was sixty-five years old. And um, and if I could if I could become a little a little worldly in a moment, this idea, she was drop dead gorgeous at sixty-five. She was so beautiful at 65. When the king saw her, the king goes, I got to have that woman. She's mine. Everyone stay away. That woman belongs to me. Who was that? Yeah, it was Sarah, wasn't it? Okay. And I know you're looking around going, well, I'm 65. Look at me. I know. I get it. You're right. You're right. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. I had to use that one, though, just because I'm going to the next one. Okay. I just want to get out of trouble for a moment. Um, 12 and verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So we know that Abraham is 10 years older than Sarah. So Sarah is 65 years old. Now look at, look at verse uh, 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarai's wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And we could stop right there and say, you know, 
But I mean, of course, we husbands, we know our women, our wives are beautiful forever, right? Now, this took one more step, okay? Because it says, you are a beautiful woman, and it will come about when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, this is the wife or his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you. Well, why are they going to kill? Why does he think they're going to kill him? Because he's married to this beautiful woman, and the king wants her. So how do you get a beautiful woman? You kill her husband, and you take her. You're the king. You can do whatever you want to do. Was she that beautiful? She must have been. She must have been. So he makes a deal and he says, look, you know, let her know that you're, you know, let's talk about our biological line for a moment. You, you, take, you are my sister, but at the same time, you're my wife. And later on, he explains that. Please say, verse 13, please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So it wasn't, it wasn't just from, from Abram's perspective as he looked at his wife and looked into her eye. It wasn't just that. No, when the Egyptians saw her, they all said, they agreed, this is a very beautiful woman. And Pharaoh's officials saw her, verse 15, and praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. I mean, you know, and again, the king's, you know, the king's definitely sexualized. So here's this beautiful woman, 65. And you know what's amazing about Sarah? She didn't change. I mean, she died at 126. So you might say that, well, you know, technically, you know, technically. Well, let's keep aging her just a little bit. 65. 75, 85. Let's get to age 90. Look at, if you will, chapter uh, 12 and look at verse 18. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? And so that whole episode happens and, and God protects Abram for doing. He didn't fight the government, <laughs> but he made his own plan Chapter 20. All that happened. Years have gone on. Life has happened. Stress and everything else. And when you get over to chapter 20, verse uh, 1. Abram journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev. And he settled between Kadesh and Shur. And then he sojourned in Gera. And Abram said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gera, sent and took Sarah. And it goes on to talk about that account. She's like 90 years old at this point. Well, you know, the next chapter, she gives birth to, to, to uh, Isaac. And we know that God already told her, you know, Abraham was 100, right? And Sarah was 90. What am I saying? There was a reason that Peter used Sarah. When he's talking in First Peter chapter 3. There was a reason. And the reason is that Peter begins to attack the heart. He already started with all of humanity. 
all Christians, all godly men, all godly women, all holy men, all holy women. And he started that in chapter 2, and he carried it all the way into chapter 3. He got very specific in chapter 2. He started talking about, you know, if you, if you work for someone, your employer, if you're a slave, whatever your position is in life, it doesn't matter. You be humble, you submit, you surrender. You go home, you surrender, you submit to each other. And then he gets into this, this issue with, okay, but now I become a Christian, and now my husband's a Christian, or maybe he's not. He doesn't give the scenario. He just says the man's disobedient to the word. How do I win him over? How do I fix? How do I help my stubborn husband come to Jesus? That's the question. So now we go back to First Peter, please. Chapter 3. He's going to spend some time on this. And I want to ask you, as we're going into this, this text, does this really work? I mean, here Peter, I know we say, well, the Bible's right, and it, it is. But does it really, does it actually work? Yeah, it does. Because regardless of how you look at this, How do I say this and not get into too much trouble? Is it better for a woman to be beautiful on the inside or on the outside? It's about your heart, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, everyone can put on a bikini. Everyone can put on makeup. Everyone can, I mean, we all can, uh, bathing, we all can, we can, we can do things to the body to make us attractive in one way or another, but not... You know, it's different to every, every person. But not everyone can have a godly heart without effort. Right? It's a difference. It's a different kind of effort. Which one's lasting? External beauty or internal beauty? Yeah, internal beauty, right? Now, you, you are, some of you are, are mamas, and there are certain girls you didn't want your husband to bring home to mama. Well, Mom, here she is. She's beautiful. Yeah, but... Yeah. Mom, what else do you need? She's beautiful. Well, yeah, she is, but... But what, Mom? Yeah, well... How do you say it? She's got a rotten heart. What? Okay. So he says in verse 2, Maybe I ought to start at verse 1, just for context. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Notice he, verse, very specific. It's not just a specific, a specific kind of husband. It's any husband, right? I don't know if he's saying that we have small minds, but I get that part, right? If any of them are disobedient to the word, the word of God, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe what? You, uh, that new outfit you have? Right? right? That glamour shot? What are they observing? What are they, what are they actually, what are men really looking for? What are they observing? What's going to change them? 
What's going to make, what is he really looking for? As they observe the way you live your life, right? As they observe your, your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, now, is he supposed to be the same toward you? Of course. Of course he is. Um, but again, we're dealing with a world of egos and chauvinistic behavior, mindsets. We're in Rome, people. We're in Rome. Right? He doesn't want to hear your mouth in Rome. He can have you executed like that because you have no rights. But he wants to see how you live. And he, and he, and he, he loves that respect. And maybe he gets more respect on his job than he does in his home. I, I mean, I don't... But what he's looking at, and what he's, what he's, when he's looking at Jesus, and then he looks at you, and he goes, wait, Jesus? And when he struggles with, you're not quite like Jesus. Why would I convert to Jesus when you're not even quite like Jesus? But then when he also struggles with, well, Jesus was respectful and submissive, submission, full submission, and he surrendered to the government, but, but he was in charge. So the reality is, he, how does that even work, right? It, submission had nothing to do with it because he was in charge. He even told Pilate, you would have no power over me except I, I give it to you. The Father gives it to you. <laughs> Who do you think you are, Pilate? I, I'm God. No, he didn't do that. He just said, okay, I'll surrender. Why would you do that, Jesus? Because that's where the power really is. It's in humility. Hmm. Not about power, though. But that's where Jesus is. Right? He's not in the, the putting your thumb on people, and he's not in the whips and the... He's not in the persecution. He's not in... He's not in the, I'm stronger than you, so you have to surrender. He's not in... He's not in that. He's in the humble side that I just say, you know, who am I? You know, I mean, really, in reality, who, who am I? You know, I mean, who am I? Really? I'm just a little a pea inside of a big old bucket of peas. And we all look the same. <laughs> who, who am I? See, it's when we get there, church, that we, we, we fix our marriages, fix our relationships with our children, fix our relationships with the world, with the government, with the ruling authorities, and we just, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, and then he says, look, beauty's only skin deep. <laughs> That's all. See, in your adornment, verse 3, and let your adornment not merely be external. He didn't say you could not have external beauty. Well, you couldn't say that because he used Sarah. She was externally beautiful, but she was also inwardly beautiful, right? It, it can't just be that. There has to be more to you than that. If that's all that's to you, I'll let James finish that sermon next week. All right. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing. Is he saying you can't do that? 
No, he just says, don't let that be it. Wearing the gold jewelry or putting on dresses or let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, now we get right back to the point, which is what? Precious in the sight of your husband? Nope. Precious in the sight of whom? God. That's what God, oh, now we got the big picture. This is what God is looking for. Oh, I get it, Lord. Now I get it. From all of us, men and women alike, right? The text is about women. For in this way, former times of holy women also hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have come to her children, come to be her children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Husbands, don't do that. See, don't frighten your wife with fear because you're stronger than her. That's the next verse. See, he's putting it all into perspective. No, you humble yourself too, sir. Who do you think you are? She's sitting right next to you equally in the eyes of God. Don't you see it? We're supposed to see it. If you don't see it, here's what's going to happen. When you come to me and you pray, I'm not going to listen to you. You know, there's no scripture equal to that with women. That's specific toward women. Now, that's specific toward sin and sinners in life, generically. But this specific verse about husbands and telling husbands how to live their lives, these verses are very unique to Peter in a time when God's people are strangers and aliens in a world of sin, right? All kinds of sin. Verse 7, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. We could stop right there and go, Lord, that's the problem. I don't understand. All right, we're not. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she's a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered and then he sums everything up, right? Just sum it all up. Let it. We need harmony in our homes, church. We need harmony, unity, right? Togetherness. That's how we win against Satan. You can't do this by yourself. You're a man. You think you're strong. Go ahead and fight Satan. See what happens, right? You're not strong enough. None of us are. How do you, how do you win a battle you can't even see coming? Not only can you not see coming, you can't even see it. How do you fight Satan? How do you fight the demonic powers of the world, the world forces? And the, how, do you, how do you fight that? How do you? You need Jesus, right? In order to have Jesus, we've got to surrender to him, right? And so we, we learn to surrender because we need each other. How many times in a husband and a wife relationship, how many times do you find yourself where maybe you're the husband and you're strong, this day, but give me a couple hours, and then I'm weak. And when I'm weak, my wife, she's strong. And then when she's weak, I'm strong. And wow, that's good unity, isn't it? So sometimes I've got to hold on to her, and sometimes she has to hold on to me, but all of the time we got to hold on to Jesus, right? All right, so I knew I wouldn't get through all this, um, but we'll, we'll come back a little next week. Again, we'll try to set up class the same way. Um, thank you for your your time, uh, and I appreciate it. I'm sorry I really didn't get into many questions, but if you do have questions, bring them back next week or comments, 
And we'll open up with that and then we'll get into our class. So thank you very much for your time. We, we appreciate it. God bless you.